everyone. You are listening to Policy Speaking, a podcast by the Public Policy Forum focused on the implications of the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Today, I'm joined by two former Deputy Prime Ministers of Canada, John Manley and Anne McClellan. We're going to be talking about governing through a crisis, and few have been more hands-on in their experience in doing just that. The Honourable Anne McClellan served four terms as the Member of Parliament for Edmonton Centre from 1993 to 2006. In addition to being Deputy Prime Minister, she was Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, Minister of Health, Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, and Minister of Natural Resources. As Justice Minister, she ushered through the anti-terrorism legislation after 9-11. As Health Minister, she dealt with the SARS epidemic. As Deputy Prime Minister, she chaired the Security, Public Health and Emergencies Committee. So she's well qualified. And she's currently a senior advisor at Bennett Jones, where she provides national and international strategic planning assistance to the firm's clients. John Manley served as a member of parliament for Ottawa South from 1988 to 2004. For more than a decade, he served in the federal government as industry minister, finance minister and minister of foreign affairs. In the wake of the 9-11 attacks and the closing of the border with the United States, he was put in charge of negotiating new border arrangements that would ensure both security and movement of goods and people. More recently, he was President and Chief Executive Officer of the Business Council of Canada. John and Anne, thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you uh, and to be back in conversation with you, although I wish the circumstances were better. A pleasure to be working and conversing with my former colleague, John Manley, again. <laughs> All right. Well, we've done the loving part. Uh, now, <laughs> now, now, we will, now we're going to start off with some of the lessons from the past and then you know, speak to some of the measures being taken in the present as well. So you were both around the cabinet table uh, during 9-11 when 9-11 uh, occurred and as Justice Minister John as Minister of Foreign Affairs. How did your world as government change suddenly? Uh, Why don't we start with you, Anne? Well, I would say everything changed almost from the minute that uh, we heard that the first plane went into uh, the tower of one of the World Trade Towers. I was actually in FPT meetings with my uh, colleagues. Both. uh, What does that mean, FPT? No, FPT, Federal Provincial Territorial Meetings. Ah. Uh, And we were at White Point Resort in Nova Scotia. That fall, the meetings were being co-hosted by Nova Scotia and the Government of Canada. And my colleague, Lawrence McCauley, who was Federal Solicitor General, and I were co-hosting with our Nova Scotia counterparts. So we had all the FPT, Ministers of Justice, Saul Jens, and so on, around the table that morning. And someone came into the room at uh, the, the resort and passed me a note. And the note was to, uh, that a plane had gone into uh, one of the World Trade Towers. Uh, I announced that to colleagues. Um, but at that point, we thought it was a tragic accident. Then maybe 20 minutes later, I don't remember exactly, another note uh, that the second plane had gone into the second tower. And at that point, everything changed. Um, obviously, no more meeting. Everybody huddled around the big screen TV in the bar at the resort. Uh, 
and the RCMP came. Lawrence and I were there. The RCMP came, provided us with security. Uh, one of the fastest, I thought maybe I could, I might not even make it to the Challenger at Shearwater because we, we were in a car. We had front car, back car, and nobody knew what was going to happen next. And from that moment on, up uh, you know, the weeks and even the months that followed, I think it's fair to say that pretty much everything changed in our lives around the legislative agenda, the fiscal agenda, how we were working with our allies around the world, and so on. John, do you remember when, when you know, it sort of dawned on you that, uh, that the entire policy agenda was going to be different? Huh. I was actually in the air. I was on a an Air Canada 747 flying from Frankfurt to Toronto. Um, we were already out over the Atlantic Ocean when the flight attendants came to tell me um, what had happened. And very quickly after that, uh, told me that the pilots wanted me to join them in on the flight deck. So, which of course is not something anyone can do anymore, but at that at that time, I sat on the flight deck listening to the BBC report of what was going on in the United States, um, while the pilots remarked on the fact that the chatter, the normal chatter that they hear over the airwaves on a transatlantic flight had quickly stopped. We were the last flight to continue on from Europe. We were diverted as other, everything else was until um, at some point uh, the deputy minister of transport discovered where I was. The prime minister that day was the only minister in Ottawa. And as it happened, he was meeting with the premier of Saskatchewan, Lauren Calvert at the time. And he wanted as many of us to get back as, as could. So uh, my plane was allowed to go ahead and land in Toronto, which was an eerie event. I was part of the story, but to answer your question directly, I, I knew instantly uh, we'd been worried about what became known as the Millennium Bomber, who had been uh, trying to get into the United States with a car packed with explosives on late in December of 1999. Uh, he was caught more or less by accident, but we knew that the U.S., was concerned about Canada being a possible weak underbelly of security for them. And my immediate thought was, first of all, I hope these people did not come in from Canada. And secondly, was this going to change everything? This is going to change the total outlook around security in the North American environment. And we've got to make sure that we stay on the right side of it or we're going to find the borders are irrevocably impeded for trade and commerce. So I, it was, I, I must say, I, I think it was pretty immediate for me once I knew what had happened. So as you, you know, uh, as you think back to, uh, to, you know, immediately knowing you're going to have to recalibrate and getting together with your colleagues, et cetera, and, and being in this, you know, crisis that's fast moving and nobody has, you know, perfect information about what's going on. You know, what lessons looking back would you draw off that that are, you think are applicable today? 
Well, the first thing I'd say is that the the, the governments today that are dealing with the COVID-19 crisis are facing a much more complex and, and varied set of difficult circumstances than we were. Uh, I'd say what we faced after 9-11 was maybe the most critical and rapidly developing crisis that had happened before or since. I'd say 2008, 2009 were complicated, but they, they, they happened more in stages than, than immediately. But, but, but this is, is A, touching a lot of different aspects of uh, life and is immediately shutting down essentially the entire economy. So this is way more complicated and difficult. The similarities uh, include that, you know, this is one of those times, I'd say, when even the libertarians among us think that there's a role for government. Uh, this is when people actually look to the governments to give them comfort, give them support, uh, make sure that things are, are functioning right. And it's a big, big responsibility that the prime minister and his colleagues and provincial premiers bear at a time like this. And I would also say, having lived through SARS as federal minister of health, <clears throat> while these are both what we're dealing with now with COVID-19 and SARS, uh, global uh, health infectious disease crises, big difference with COVID. Uh, SARS actually uh, did not move quickly. And it was, it has proven so far to be more lethal than uh, COVID-19, thankfully. But what you see with COVID as a disease, it is evolving so quickly, moves so quickly, infects people so much more quickly than SARS, that the government is responding and having to respond to uh, new trends in the, in the infection, the tracing, the contact uh, tracing, so much harder and has to be done so much quicker with COVID-19 than we were dealing with SARS. The other thing, SARS in our country was largely geographically contained, and that was in and around the city of Toronto. And of course, the WHO issued a travel advisory against the city of Toronto and had damaging, terribly uh, damaging economic effects for the city of Toronto. But looking at it in perspective, it was in our country a largely geographically contained disease. That is not the case in terms of COVID-19 as we see the numbers uh, every day and the spread of the disease. So I think um, it, it requires an, an all of government response across the federal government, but also, and you're seeing it, a, a really high level of collaboration and coordination between the government of Canada and provinces and territories, and then in turn municipalities. And while we had some of that during SARS and certainly 9-11 as well, I think here there's a premium on that level of cooperation and coordination. Okay, well, I want to come back to the question of, of cooperation and the policies that, uh, that we're seeing right now. But just, um, you know, John mentioned libertarians a moment ago, and I just want to ask about, I guess, civil libertarians as well, uh, one brand of, of libertarians. We've had, you know, most provinces, uh, if not all, declare Emergencies Act. We haven't had the, uh, the federal government invoke its Emergencies Act. 
which has never been invoked. It was invoked, its predecessor was invoked, uh, both in uh, the First World War, the Second World War, and during the uh, FLQ crisis. What are the kinds of considerations that would go into, and let me start with you here, what, were the, what are the kinds of considerations that would go into the government of Canada making such a uh, declaration and bringing it to Parliament? Well, first and foremost, it would be in terms of what they're seeing from their public health officers across the country and in the government of Canada in terms of the spread and whether actually the spread is, dare I say, out of control, whether because of the degree of spread, um, whether provinces are in a situation uh, to be able to bring to bear their public health legislation and other tools to effectively deal with the spread of the disease and its implications themselves, or whether or not there's a value, a big value add by invoking the national, it would be a public welfare emergency under the uh, new Emergencies Act, which the government of Prime Minister Brian Mulroney brought in in 1988. So it would be a public welfare emergency that deals with health. And where is the value add that the government of, and the powers that the government of Canada believes within consultation, although they don't need the consent of the provinces and territories, but in consultation with them, where are the uh, extra powers and abilities that the government of Canada would put in place to control the uh, spread and to deal with its aftermath, be it in hospitals uh, or elsewhere? in communities. And of course, the Quarantine Act, we amended it. Brand new, really, Quarantine Act after SARS, because we had huge confusion around what powers we had under the existing Quarantine Act. And the federal government can do a lot of what it needs to do across the country, at least as it relates to the public health emergency through the Quarantine Act. And the provinces supplement or complement that through their public health acts. And you've seen that roll out across the country. John, do you, do you think that that would be, I mean, at this point, I guess, overreach? Or, or would it be uh, in some ways a signal to the public, even beyond the question of powers, but, but a message about, uh, about again, about seriousness uh, of, of what is going on? I think that would really be the most effective way for the, the government to shake everybody by the by the shoulders and say this is this is really really big I, I don't know what powers they really additionally need perhaps if they wanted to redirect industrial production to uh, specialty purposes but I don't think that's proving necessary I think lots of companies if they can are eagerly willing to build ventilators to make protective personal equipment. I mean, we've seen it with Bauer. We've seen it with Canada Goose. By the way, I'd love to get a Canada Goose hospital gown, but for other purposes, not to, not to wear in the hospital. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but I think companies are actually being very eager to, to, to do what they can if they can be uh, licensed to do so. So I don't think that power is necessary. We used it, of course, during the wars to redirect industrial production to the war effort. Um, so I think the main thing would be, it would be the, the biggest single federal signal you could make of the urgency and desperation of the situation. 
most of the other powers can always ready be exercised by provinces in terms of discouraging collective gatherings, uh, you know, insisting on on social distancing and so on. That that can already be done. So, so w- w- would I infer from both of you that uh, you don't think we've uh, we've hit a threshold where this is necessary? Not yet, in my opinion. I don't, I don't. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, the issues that civil libertarians raised uh, with our government post nine eleven were were quite different, and they were they were focused on specific provisions in Bill C thirty six that 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 Anne and and Lawrence brought forward, and and we you know to say that that our our committee of cabinet and the full cabinet didn't deliberate and think long and hard about those anxieties would be untrue because we we spent a lot of time on on issues related to whether we were overreaching on civil liberties and in fact to john's point uh, that was a significant part of the discussion in the committee, the ad hoc committee after 9-11 that he chaired in terms of my officials and I would come forward with various provisions, suggested provisions in relation to new anti-terrorism legislation and uh, a big discussion around the table always. And it was a fairly large group, right, John, 12 maybe ministers? Big discussion always around whether we were overreaching and whether uh, what we were doing in the name of national security reflected Canadian values. Um, and we went back and redrafted. I remember sometimes, John, I don't know if you remember, I believe in exasperation because committee members would say, well, we think maybe that could be used in a way that would overreach. And therefore, my deputy minister, Morris Rosenberg, and I, with our officials, back we would go and uh, our uh, and we would talk it through and come back with another draft of a particular provision. So I think uh, John's committee did a great job of dealing with those questions and forcing, you know, recalibration by all of us around the table in terms of not over reacting, but also not underreacting to not, uh, the situation. And I think ultimately coming up with a balanced package that has withstood the limited Supreme Court of Canada challenge there's been. Yeah, I think that's right, Ed. And I, and I, and I point out the difference in what special powers are being exercised in the current circumstances being very different. I mean, we were trying to deal, we had, we didn't even really have a good definition of what terrorism was. Um, we, we understood that there were some behavioral limits that had been breached and w- that we had discovered people were willing to breach in order to achieve political objectives. And we wanted to impose appropriate limits for public safety without Im- impinging people's freedom to have whatever opinion and express whatever opinion they wanted. In the in the COVID-19 case, um, I think what governments are ter- striving to do is to enforce limits on people's behavior, yes, and that's where there's a similarity, but in the face of very clear scientific medical evidence that Failure to enforce those limits 
was going to impact uh, broadly the spread of the disease and the capacity of, of uh, medical and health facilities to cope with it. I think it's it's very different. If you like, the anti-terrorism piece was was heavily value-laden in terms of what we were trying to accomplish and a lot more controversial in terms of whether it was the balance was right. And in this case, it's 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 pretty darn clear. Either you believe the science or you don't. And and I think uh, uh, Canadians generally are going to support governments that say they believe the science. And, and you imagine that those kinds of conversations about balance are going on today or have gone on as well uh, in this uh, in this instance. Oh, I think. I think yeah. Oh, but I think I think what's going to be very tricky because. And we're not there yet, so don't misunderstand me. We, you know, I'm I'm not saying we are going to we're all going to be in church on Easter Sunday, but there is going to be a point where governments believe they have to that the curve has been flattened as much as it can be, and they've got to begin to re- to to relax the restrictions. So that people can get out and 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 revive the economy, and nobody wants it to be too soon. But likewise, there is going to be a very tricky judgment call there, and that's where I think people are going to uh, have very very difficult decisions to make, and the debates within governments and among governments are probably going to get quite heated. I'll give you one specific example where discussions are taking place and um, you see it play out on Twitter and even in the pages of the New York Times and uh, other major newspapers in relation specifically to the crisis. And that's around uh, tracking and monitoring and the use of cell phone data. And uh, the government and the prime minister's been asked another, a number of times in terms of uh, people, especially with the invocation of the Quarantine Act, how are you going to enforce it? Well, one of the ways you enforce it, and, or it has been enforced in other countries, is, of course, through the use of cell phone data and knowing where people are, people who have been identified as positive, people who are contacts of those people, or even even anonymous data in terms of knowing where people are meeting. Are there too many people meeting in a specific park in Seoul, South Korea, or whatever it may be? And other countries have used, have gained access to that cell phone data and are using it in very rigorous, dare I say, ways uh, to uh, to both monitor and uh, to, tra- to track and monitor. And it clearly is a possible tool. Is, 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 is that an appropriate tool in the context of a public health crisis? Oh, I think uh, I think that's a discussion that's taking place. I think lessons learned coming out of this, one of them will be how effective that kind of monitoring is in an infectious disease situation. But I would say that if you look at what's happening in South Korea, France, uh, where the French, for example, are also using drones but to, to monitor people, but to but to continue to focus on cell phone data, indeed, it may be an effective tool, and it may be a tool that the government of Canada feels that it does need access to if people continue not 
to quarantine themselves coming home from outside the country, or people who are designated as positive uh, who are, are not quarantining themselves in home, uh, but for whatever reason decide that it's okay to go outside and, and so on. So I, it would be, I think, unprecedented in this country to use that data for that purpose. But I think, again, to John's point, it's around balance and the factors that would go into making that decision, and certainly the right to privacy, uh, Section 7 of the Charter, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, Section 8, those things would certainly be addressed by civil libertarians. But we've seen that our courts are generally deferential to decisions of government in times of public crisis or emergency. Well, I, um, I wonder, um, I'm going to turn to the borders. And, uh, you know, John, that was your job number one to keep the border open during 9-11 and the aftermath of 9-11. So what went through your mind this week when you heard about the possibility of troops on the border? Uh, well, I, I think my reaction was very similar to that of the government uh, of Canada, which was, what on earth are they talking about? Why would they want to do such a thing? What has happened to our whole construct in Canada-U.S. defense and security relations, which is which is based on interoperability, trust, and confidence. Uh, I, you know, I I don't know what they've ultimately decided to do about that idea, but uh, I I find it uh, I find it very very disturbing that anyone serious would even contemplate it in the United States these days. I mean, I, I wonder what, to what extent that speaks to, uh, to a problem here. You know, Anna's talked about cooperation within our federation, but obviously pandemics uh, are no more respectful of, of borders, even less so than, than terrorists. So we need international cooperation. We've had a great degree of international cooperation, but we've had a cooperation system that's been breaking down, it seems, over the last several years. Uh, do you think we're seeing that uh, or in danger of seeing that come home to roost in any way? Well, look, you know, the relationship between Canada and the United States has been uh, difficult and complex throughout our histories. And we had reached a certain level of where we we had a high degree of confidence in one another in certain areas, and then other areas bounced back and forth depending on various events. Donald Trump is a totally different chapter in that whole history. And uh, I think the fact that, that he has consistently been unpredictable and his comments and actions have been um, sometimes quite hostile to Canada. I mean, he was on just in recent days this week talking about needing the scrutiny to make sure that dumped steel wasn't entering the United States from Canada because they want to put tariffs on it. I mean, this is, this is all uh, somewhat bizarre, and it makes it very difficult for Canadian officials to, to sort out exactly what it is that's, that's going on. But yes, I think not just the bilateral relationship, the relationship of the United States with uh, other G7 countries, with NATO, 
um, with the WTO, all gone through a, a, a very a difficult phase of uncertainty. And the global institutions that have been you know, built up over the last 70 some years since World War II are now in doubt. And I think it's, it's, it's gonna be a cause for concern for Canadian policymakers because you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to international public policy, trade, security, and other things, we are pretty much price takers. We don't, we don't have a, a, a lot of ability to set the stage ourselves. And to John's point, you know, we think of the G7 or the G8 uh, working together um, in terms of of the global economy or global security issues, anti-terrorism strategies. But uh, that level of cooperation and coherency around uh, objectives and outcomes and policymaking is also important in terms of pandemics. Because if you ever want an example of a challenge that doesn't respect borders, it's an infectious disease. And you need to be sharing information in real time. You need to have assurance that countries around the world are collecting good information around the disease, the spread of the disease, what researchers are learning in different countries. You need to be sharing that as much as possible in real time and getting it back to the people, whether it's your frontline healthcare professionals or global policymakers. And, you know, we saw, wasn't it, John, this week, they, uh, the G7 uh, ministers, uh, maybe foreign affairs ministers, couldn't issue a a press release, uh, a communique, because America wanted the infection described as the Wuhan virus. Well, come on, guys. We are dealing with people's lives here. You know, the spread of the disease and what we can learn from each other and how we can share resources. And we are hung up on somebody, you know, America insisting in a most unhelpful way (laughs) that this is called the Wuhan virus. Um, This does not speak to the level or degree of of even civility, I think, but cooperation and collaboration that we need to see from our global leaders to provide the world with the confidence that that we've got our uh, we've got a handle on what this disease is and how it spreads and how quickly it spreads and what we need to do to stop its spread. Yeah, I guess that's one of the differences from uh, from your period with SARS and uh, with 9/11 that your interlocutors, you know, essentially saw the world in the same way and and were you know were more cooperative. You didn't have the same level of unpredictability. Um, And also, you know, following 9-11, every global acronym that I can think of all issued statements of support for the United States. Um, You know, the president of France uttered the words, we're all Americans today. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, nobody's saying that since Donald Trump came into office, nor does he seem to consider that to be particularly something of value that he would like to try to aspire to. So, I, I, yes, I mean, the, the, the totally different. And uh, where we go from here post-November 2000, 
2020, I, I think remains to be seen. If if we see the re-election of, of President Trump, and I think it's noteworthy that despite uh, many things happening during this COVID-19 crisis, his polling numbers are going up and not down, and his re-election may be uh, more likely than some would like. Four more years of this kind of, of attitude by America will will change the shape of the world in a permanent way. Right. So these verbal effects are, are, are obviously going to be great. Uh, the most profound uh, initial ripple effect from the health crisis is the economy, of course. And I wonder, uh, I wonder if you think that the measures we've seen so far uh, are appropriate. And if we're going to need, if you think we're going to need a different kind of set of measures when we talk about uh, getting through you know, the uh, to the other side and getting the economy reignited again. John? Well, I think that the measures have been, have been important and uh, every day new things unfold. Um, most recently, a 75% wage subsidy that will keep a lot of people in uh, employment relationships that was not going to be the case otherwise. Um, the the uh, deferral of income tax remittances has now been broadened, I understand, to include HST remittances. Uh, I think it probably needs to be rebut- you know, broadened further to include uh, other remittances to government, including CPP, um, EI, and other things. There's no point in having our, our, our business sector borrowing money in order to pay the government at this point in time. So... Uh, I think all of that is right. I mean, the government's objective here has to be that when this ends, that we not be faced with a scorched earth. I mean, undoubtedly, green shoots will arise, but you can't build large, complex business organizations overnight. So we need to keep them going as, as best we can in a period when they have little or no revenue coming in to, to pay their bills. And so, uh, you know, th- this is why I say this is way more complicated than anything we faced post 9-11 or, or during SARS. This is because it's economy wide and because it goes right to the, the point at which um, businesses have to look to something on the top line in order to produce anything down, uh, down the flow. So I think they've, they've taken the right steps. It makes me feel less of a curmudgeon for complaining for years about us running deficits when the economy is growing, because I kept saying, you never know what's going to come. And, you know, and I, I wish we had some of that fiscal room back that we've spent during good times. But this is not the time to be holding back. Uh, what we do with this afterwards is going to be complex, difficult and very, very hard. Um, and there will be pain shared everywhere. But in the meantime, making sure that when we can relax the isolation measures and businesses can begin to refunction more or less in, in a continuing fashion is vitally important. And you're, um, you're in Alberta. You're at home in Edmonton. Uh, we're all at home now. Do you think uh, Alberta's obviously suffered the double whammy of, uh, of COVID-19 and its effect on the economy like everyone, but a collapse in oil prices uh, as well? Is this a special situation that requires a special policy response? 
Um, I, I do think that the implications of, of bringing these two events together, uh, the, well, the, the uh, war between the Saudis and the Russians in terms of oil production, which uh, uh, was, I suppose, the straw that broke the camel's back in relation to the price of oil, even though demand was down anyway around the world because of COVID-19, and we continue to expect to see that demand lessen even further. Uh, but I think uh, that coming together with COVID-19, I guess you can describe it as a perfect storm or a black swan. And yeah, that is why uh, Minister Morneau and uh, the Minister of Finance here in Alberta have been uh, talking about what measures uh, on top of those that apply to the economy nationally, what measures uh, are needed and can be uh, rolled out uh, to deal with the circumstances here, generally in the Alberta economy, but as it particularly relates to the oil and gas industry. Obviously, uh, many uh, companies in the industry uh, suffering from major cash flow issues, liquidity issues, and you see, obviously, companies starting to ba- cut back dramatically in terms of their projected capital spends uh, in the coming months and year, uh, year at least, uh, but undoubtedly much longer. So we don't know um, what uh, the, uh, I do not know where those discussions are at and what a package might look like, but I have been led to believe that those discussions are ongoing and it is a recognition of the fact that uh, Alberta's economy was in tough shape before COVID, the full effects of COVID-19 hit. And of course, it's now in much worse shape. Uh, what now that the full effects of COVID-19, uh, well, we don't know the full effects yet, but we uh, taking into account the effects of COVID-19 today with the collapse of the oil price and so on, that uh, there are going to be some uh, extraordinary or special measures that are going to be required for the province. So let me um, let me um, turn finally towards this question of leadership. Let's finish on leadership. You know, we've had a lot of challenges in recent years with public trust and confidence, both in public institutions and in the private sector as well. Do you think that uh, this is going to change people and their expectations? I think we saw you had you know some comments before that uh, that you know people are turning to the state more now. Do you think that this will, uh, as the Second World War perhaps did, lead people to want a social safety net in a different way? And we came out of the war with a different set of policies. Do you think this will lead to ongoing kinds of changes? Well, I tend to think there will be some fundamental changes that will. Uh, ensue from this, but we don't know yet how long it all lasts, and you know the degree to which there there are you know major players left in the economy. The politics are are very complicated here. I mean, let's remember Winston Churchill lost the first election following World War II. George H. W. Bush had a ninety percent uh, approval rating after the first Gulf War, and then lost the next election to. Bill Clinton. So there's the a, a crisis is uh, is an opportunity for a leader to show resolve, uh, to show empathy, to show understanding, and effectively demonstrate leadership. And uh, you know, I think 
in my judgment, Prime Minister Trudeau has been doing a pretty good job at all of those things during the, the crisis. Whether there's a political reward for it remains to be seen. Um, but the more fundamental question is, uh, when we start to run you know, deficits of $100 billion and our debt-to-GDP ratio uh, soars, there are going to be some tough uh, adjustments to make after that. And how you allocate the costs of getting our, our house back in order uh, will be very fraught political discussions and, and decisions to make. And parties are going to differ on how they think those costs should be allocated. And that's the fundamental nature of politics. I would say, at least in the current crisis, we I have been heartened by the display of leadership on, yes, the prime minister, this is a national crisis. You would expect him to show leadership. And to John's point, I think he's been doing a, a good job, a very good job. But I'm also heartened by the fact that the premiers have have come out virtually every day to talk to their citizens, their residents, and um, in some cases to do so in a very heartfelt and emotional way in terms of some of what they see that, for example, with Premier Ford, unacceptable conduct, um, price gouging and things. The other day he got very emotional about that. And you know what? I think he should. And um, leadership takes many forms and leaders go through many emotions uh, as they're dealing with uh, crises. But I, I have been heartened in this federation, which after the last federal election was, you know, I don't know who it was who made the crazy comment, and I hope I'm not insulting someone who's a friend, about Canada being broken. I actually don't think Canada's broken. Um, this federation has challenges. It always has. But you do see in a situation of crisis, the country coming together and putting to one side the, what partisan differences and saying this is bigger than any of us. We have to focus on the common good. We have to f focus on the, the common good of all Canadians, regardless of where they live. And our people writ large in this country expect us to do better, perhaps, than we have been doing. And um, I am heartened by the fact that our uh, political leaders, I think at all levels, including major cities, have come together and understand the nature of this crisis and the fact that, to John's point earlier, this is not going to be easy. Once the immediate crisis is over, we have to probably literally rebuild the economy out of, of uh, what uh, is left, both in this country and globally. Um, and that's going to take a form of leadership that will call for the very best from the people we have in public office at whatever level right now. And I am heartened by what I see so far in terms of our uh, elected leaders stepping up and understanding that this is not about them and not about partisan politics at this point, but it is about defining what is necessary to serve the common good. 
You know, I want to um, I want to thank both of you for uh, uh, for devoting so much time and thought to this. I mean, you are uh, leaders who've uh, played at the highest level in good times and bad times. You're in a position to uh, to uh, analyze what's going on in a way that uh, that few others are. And uh, and I think that uh, we're going through uh, bad times, and I hope I hope we will come go through good times again because uh, that's the way the world eventually unfolds. But as you both say, a tough journey uh, from here to there, I'm sure. Yeah. Thank you both for spending time with us today on Policy Speaking. Thank you, and it's wonderful to see and hear you both. Likewise. I'm Edward Greenspawn on behalf of the Public Policy Forum, and this has been Policy Speaking.